Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to hear your word, may your spirit indwell our hearts and our minds and warm us to hear a message from you. And as I preach, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The first sermon I preached in this series, um, I started by talking about movies that have a twist surprise ending, movies that cause you to go back and re-watch them in the light of the unexpected end. Well, today I thought I would talk about a different type of movie ending. One of my favorite movie series is The Lord of the Rings. Maybe there's some other fans here. Uh, Based on the epic fantasy series by J.A.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings is a long, epic story. It's got a world with vast lore. There's tons of characters, its own language, and lots of subplots. So when you get to the last of the books, The Return of the King, it's the longest of the stories. And the conclusion of The Lord of the Rings doesn't end just with the end of the conflict, right? This this plot that's been driving the story, the destruction of the One Ring. But but Tolkien has several chapters after that as he ties together all those loose ends and you get a conclusion to each character's arc and all of the different subplots and stories. And so it's this long, drawn-out conclusion. And if you watch Return of the King, the movie, um, it, it feels a bit odd, right? So if anyone's ever seen it, right, you get to kind of the end and it feels like it's over and the screen fades to black. But then it comes back and you get another scene. And it does it like five times. So by the end, you're like, okay, is this the end? Is this the end? And it just keeps going. But you get these beautiful scenes. Again, not just the conclusion of the action, but you get the return of the fellowship to come together in Rivendell. And you get the return to the Shire. And you get the crowning of the king. And you get the journey westward to the land of the angels. And all of these different scenes that conclude and wrap up all of the threads that Tolkien has weaved throughout the story. So today we come to the end of Romans 11. We've been looking this summer at Romans 9 through 11. And this section is the conclusion of that passage. But not only that passage, if if you look at Romans 12, it's one of Paul's famous therefore statements, which basically means, okay, in the light of everything I've said before it, therefore, this is what we should do. So 12 to the end is kind of its own section. And this This part of 11 is really concluding the whole letter that comes before it. And Paul's taking those threads that he's been weaving through the letter and tying them into a bow. So what I'd like to do this morning, if you want to open the text, it's in the back of your bulletins, or you can open your Bible to Romans 11, starting with verse 25. We're going to go kind of step by step and see how these different threads come together. So he begins, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. The first thing I want to look at is that word mystery. What does Paul mean? When I think of mystery, I think of like mystery novels, Sherlock Holmes, where there's a bunch of clues that we're trying to solve the puzzle together and come up with a solution. But we, unlike Sherlock Holmes, are not very good detectives. So again, the mystery of God is that no one was able to put together all the pieces and come up with Jesus Christ. And so for us, the mystery is that in Jesus, we again, it's this concept I talked about before of reading backward. 
We're able to look back and then see all of the clues that lead up to the surprise ending. And so the mystery of God is like this puzzle. All the pieces were in place throughout Scripture. The prophets foretold, but no one quite put it together until Jesus comes. But now in the light of Jesus, we look at all of those scriptures and come to this final mystery together. And so again, Paul uh, rereads, reads backwards into Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And he puts Jesus as the fulfillment of that prophecy in a new and unique way through the end of the law and a faith and a righteousness that comes apart from the law and the inclusion of the Gentiles, this surprise ending, this mystery, as Paul says. And I think that word is really a key to all of Romans. So if you read the whole book of Romans, it's really Paul, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, re-understanding and relearning his faith in the scriptures in the light of who Jesus is and this unexpected twist of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so this summer we've been looking at, okay, so what about Israel and how does Israel fit into that? And Paul calls it a mystery. That's the word he uses. There's another sense that I want us to pick up from this word mystery that I think Paul is getting at here. And that's the idea that God's ways are so much greater than our ways. I think probably most of you know that famous passage from Isaiah, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways greater than your ways. And so he ends this section, to jump ahead as a, as a preview, we'll come back to this, but he says, Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What Paul is getting at with this word mystery is that God's ways are so much greater than ours, his wisdom so much greater than ours, that we never could have put it together in the way in which God put it together. And so it's a mystery to us. And so he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. It humbles us as we realize that we don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers, but God does. And so we put our trust in him and he has revealed his plan to us in Jesus Christ. And so that is what Paul means by this term mystery. And I also bring it up because every week when we come to the table, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but we say we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And that phrase, the mystery of faith, comes from this passage and Paul's understanding of the mystery of God, that in his wisdom, he's done something unexpected that no one saw coming. So what is the mystery that he's talking about here in Romans? He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is what we've been talking about in Romans 11. And he says a partial hardening here, it goes back to the beginning of Romans 11, where we looked at that idea of a remnant of Israel. It's a theme that's big throughout Scripture, that when things seem hopeless, when it seems like Israel has turned away and all is lost and God maybe has abandoned his people, yet there's a faithful remnant that it remains. And so Paul doesn't just say there's a hardening that's come over Israel, rather it's a partial hardening. So we get that thread picked up of God's remnant, of God's faithfulness to his people. Has God given up on his people? Remember what he said? By no means God has been faithful all along. And he says a partial hardening. 
Now again, that word hardening goes back to earlier in, a, uh, in chapter 9. When Gene was walking us through, do you remember that difficult passage where we talked about uh, predestination and election and God who will have mercy on whom he has mercy and will harden those whom he will harden? And in that chapter, Paul looked back at the Exodus story when God delivered his people out of slavery. The way that the text describes that is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Do you remember that story? God gave Pharaoh lots of opportunities. Through Moses, he said, let my people go. But again and again, Pharaoh turned away and hardened his heart against God and didn't release his people until eventually the texts say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So this mystery that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God showed him mercy and gave him opportunities, but in the end it was also God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. And through this hardening, God revealed himself, his character to his people and to Egypt. It was only through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that God was able to do his miraculous signs, those plagues and those wonders that he did to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. In all of this, God was revealed to be a great God, greater than all of the gods of Egypt, greater than the gods of any of the surrounding nations, as the Almighty One, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God above all gods. And God revealed himself to his people as a redeeming and caring God who heard their cries and delivered them from their suffering. And so it's through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that the salvation came to Israel and God revealed himself. So here Paul picks up that thread and twists it and says that now that Jesus has been revealed, it is Israel who has hardened their hearts to God. In a surprise, there's a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. And as tragic as it is, it's through the hardening that the Gentiles are going to come in. Because Israel has hardened themselves to Jesus, God's mercy gets extended to God's people. We've been exploring that theme together, the idea that God's people is going out to the ends of the earth, that people from every tribe, nation, language shall come before the throne of God and worship him. And so God has not given up on his promises. God has not abandoned his plan. Rather, through the hardening of the Israelites, God's plan will come to its fruition. I'd like to consider the gospel reading with you this morning. It's a text that probably many of you are familiar with, the Samaritan woman at the well. So if you look at the gospel in its context, before the story, Jesus was doing ministry in Judea. And what happens is the Pharisees hear about that ministry and are coming to put a stop to it. And Jesus is aware that the Pharisees have hardened against him and turned against him. So he turns to go to Galilee, but he goes through Samaria. So it's the hardening of the Pharisees that leads him to the Samaritan woman. And here he is meeting unexpectedly, right? The disciples are dumbfounded that he's talking to this woman, this Samaritan woman nonetheless. Now the Samaritans, uh, if you don't know, were not Jews, but they have a common ancestry with the Jews. So at one time they were one people, but they've split off and have their own beliefs and history. It'd be very similar to us, like if we were to have a conversation with a Mormon or even a Muslim. We share some of the same scriptures, we share some of the same heritage, but now there's a division between us and even a hostility between us. 
So it was with the Jews and the Samaritans in Jesus' day. Yet through the hardening of the Pharisees, he goes through Samaria and ends up having this conversation that leads not only the woman, but we're told that many people in the town come to have faith in Jesus Christ because of his word. And so through the hardening of some of Israel, Jesus comes to reveal himself not only as Israel's Messiah, but what do they say? We know he is the Savior of the world. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And at that point, the disciples, the Samaritans wouldn't have even been part of the plan in their eyes. To them, Jesus was the Messiah. It meant he was coming to become Israel's new king, that he was going to restore the nation of Israel, restore Jerusalem. But here, in the mystery and mercies of God, the Samaritans become part of the plan. And suddenly they get this bigger picture of who Jesus is and what it means for him to be a Messiah. He didn't just come to save Israel. He came to save the whole world, that all the nations would come in. And so it's through the partial hardening of Israel that the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And Paul continues in verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This picks up on another thread that Paul has been working through the book of Romans. And it's the idea that Israel is not simply the biological descendants of Abraham. So that if you're a great, 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 however many great grandkids of Abraham, then you're part of Israel. But rather he says that a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed in Jesus and now through faith in Jesus Christ, all those who put their trust in God can be part of Israel, part of God's people. And so Paul is concluding that thread by saying, in this way, all of Israel will be saved, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles who have come in to be this fuller people of God. There's a great lesson, I think, in this for us, that through the hardening of Israel, the salvation of God ends up being revealed. So often in our life, we go through things that are very difficult for us, and they feel perhaps like God has abandoned us, or they don't go according to our plans. So maybe you, you thought that you were destined for a particular job, but then you didn't get it, or you get fired from your job or laid off, or you're not married to the person you thought you would be, or you wanted to have children, but it was never meant to be or someone dies, or you have a loss of a relationship. These very hard and difficult moments. But what we hear in this passage is that in the mystery of God, these things which are difficult to us can often be the way in which God wants to show his salvation. That through the hardening comes the surprise mystery salvation of God. And I think that's a lesson that's worth meditating on and thinking about. What does it mean that God uses something that seems evil, something that seems hard and difficult and suffering, but uses it for his glory and good? I did want to say a word about that. Sometimes, I think, unfortunately, Christians use that as a way to just dismiss suffering and say, well, God works together for good. Or God has a, a greater plan. And so I hear that sometimes, you know, when someone is suffering and grieving a loss, a death, a loss of a relationship, a loss of a job, um, that Christians, we can be quick to dismiss it. But let's remember 
how this passage started in Romans 9. Do you remember that first verse? Paul was in anguish and grieving how the Israelites were had hardened. And he said, I would rather be lost and give up my salvation for the sake of my people if it would mean that they would come in and have faith in Jesus Christ. So this message doesn't mean that we just dismiss. There's a place for grieving. There is suffering and hardness. But this idea that there's a mystery of God, that God's wisdom and his ways and his judgment are so beyond us, it allows us that in the midst of our suffering, we can have hope. We can have hope that we put our trust and faith in that God whose ways are greater than ours, that often we don't get it. We don't put the puzzle pieces together. We don't solve the mystery. But in the fullness of God, God will work many of those things out for good. And it is through the hardening sometimes that his salvation comes to us. Let's continue looking at Romans 11, starting in verse 28. Paul continues, As regards to the gospel, they, meaning the Israelites, are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Here we pick up another theme. Back in Romans chapter 4, Paul first starts talking about Abraham and how it wasn't because of Abraham's righteousness that God chose him. God chose Abraham out of his mercy and his choice. Yet Abraham trusted God and believed in his word, and through his faith, God counted it as righteousness and blessed Abraham because of his faith. And so we see both of these themes, the theme that the Gentiles are, are brought in through faith, and it's not simply Abraham's children who will be saved, and yet at the same time, Abraham was blessed, and so that blessing continues even today. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Again, that theme, has God abandoned his people? By no means. He has saved a remnant and is preserving his people and indeed, it is through the inclusion of the Gentiles and the expansion of God's people that the promises and blessing to Abraham are fulfilled. If you go back and look at the story of Abraham, Abraham was blessed saying that his, his children would be the stars of the, more numerous than the stars of the sky, than the sands of the sea. And yet he was blessed to be a blessing to all people and that eventually the nations of the world will be blessed through his offspring. And so we see that even though there's a partial hardening over Israel, God has remained faithful to that promise and that blessing and is fulfilling it in Jesus. So he continues, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now, and he's talking here to the Gentiles, right? So you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that... The, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. We talked about this last week, that Paul desires to make his fellow people jealous, that by the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, when the Jews see salvation being extended to all these peoples, that eventually the full picture is that the Jews will also come back in. And so this idea that God's kingdom, his people are expanding until all the ends of the earth receive mercy. So he concludes with a statement that I think is not only a good conclusion for our summer series for chapters 9 through 11, 
but really the whole of Paul's project in Romans up until this point. He says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This reminds me of Romans chapter 3, one of the most famous chapters, I think, in Romans, where Paul quotes Psalm 14 to say that God has looked out on the earth and behold, none are righteous. And Paul makes that famous statement that all have fallen short of the glory of God, both the Jew and the Gentile. And he goes through and shows how none of us have any excuse. We have failed to keep the law. We have failed to see God in his creation. And we, none of us are righteous. But what is the point of that? That God may have mercy on all. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. As we come to an end of our sermon series um, this summer, and we conclude chapter 11 this week, uh, it's worth standing up and saying, okay, so what do we make of this whole thing? Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans is difficult. It's a difficult series to preach on. Hopefully, our sermons haven't been too burdensome. Um, we, we've tried to keep it light and relatable and walk you through it. But if you just read chapters 9 through 11 straight through, there's a lot of difficult concepts. There's a lot of big words. There's like at least three theological controversies that I can think of. Um, and it feels very heady, like an intellectual exercise as Paul is working his theology. It's very, you know, theological um, and not so practical. It's not easy to look at it and say, okay, what does that mean for my life? What do I go and do? What's the result of all of this that we've been looking at as we've been trying to understand the mystery of God's mercy? Well, Paul concludes with this in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul concludes this section in worship. What do we make of everything that came before it? It causes Paul to write a poem, to sing, to praise, to expound God's glory. He falls on his knees in the light of all of God's majesty and the mystery and his unsearchableness and his inscrutableness. The result is worship. If we go back to our gospel reading, what is it that caused the Samaritan woman to see that Jesus is the Christ? What is it that caused the Samaritans to become part of God's people? It's interesting. It's a question about worship. She says, okay, I see that you're a prophet. Well, we, you know, my people worship on this mountain, but your people say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And what's Jesus' response? He says, now that I'm here, you no longer need to worship on that mountain or in Jerusalem. Rather, the true worshipers of God worship in spirit and truth. And it's that message that brings the Samaritans in. The message that the worship of God is now a matter of our heart and in our spirit, and that the spirit has come so that we can all worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We're ending our summer this, this, uh, this summer with Romans 11. 
But if we just go on for just a little bit to get a preview of chapter 12, right? I said it's one of the therefore passages. Well, what is the therefore that Paul gives? Therefore, in the light of all of this, in the, mercy, in the light of the mercies of God, he encourages us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as an act of spiritual worship. So that's the conclusion this summer, to go after all that we've heard and all that we've studied and learned, to go and worship in spirit and truth, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Romans 12 is one of my favorite passages. If you haven't read it in a while, I encourage you to go in the light of all of these sermon series as Paul explains what that means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, what it means to worship. But I thought it would be a good conclusion to think about what does that mean to worship in spirit and truth. Last week, we talked about what it means to continue in God's kindness. And we looked at abiding in Jesus. And we looked at remaining in God's kindness. And so I brought up the practice of the presence of God and Brother Lawrence and encouraged us to not just think of prayer as set aside times to pray and read the Bible, but that prayer can also be like an ongoing conversation with God, moment by moment, day by day, that in our comings and our goings, we constantly are turning to God in prayer and recognizing and remaining and abiding in Him as a way to practice the presence of God, as a way to remain in his kindness and abide in Jesus' love. Now, lest you last week thought that I was putting down the practice of uh, setting aside times of prayer, I thought today would be good to talk about that as a way of how do we worship in spirit and truth? How do we offer our lives as a living sacrifice? Well, I think one of the great ways is to make worship a part of our daily life. So I brought a book of common prayer. As Anglicans, we're not so much defined by theology. So remember when, when Gene was preaching on predestination and election, and he talked about how that's a difficult theology, and a lot of churches is split over that, and he said, I don't want to do that. We're not going to split over this issue. As Anglicans in our diocese, I, I know Calvinists, and I know Wesleyans, and I know Reformed, and I know Arminians. And I know Charismatics, and I know High Church, and I know Anglo-Catholics, and I know Evangelicals. So we're not so much defined by our theology and doctrine precisely. We tend to be united around our common worship. And so the Book of Common Prayer not only has our, our uh, liturgy for the Sunday service that we do each week as we come together, but the foundations of this book at the beginning are the daily office, morning, noon, evening, and Compline, night prayer. So if you're new to Anglicanism and you don't know what I'm talking about and you've never seen a book of common prayer, or perhaps you're a lifelong Episcopalian and you have one of these collecting dust at home somewhere, um, I would encourage you to go check it out. The daily office is a great practice. It's a great way to shape our lives around the worship of God, to make our lives a living sacrifice to Him to glorify him and worship and prayer. And so check out the daily office. There's even a phone app that the ACNA put out. Um, I have it on my phone. It makes it really easy to pray as you go and set aside times of your day. Uh, there's also a short version of it for families and private devotion that is really easy to get into. But I thought I'd conclude our summer series, our, our Romans Road journey, by looking at the back of the prayer book. 
There's a whole section in the back here that maybe some of you are aware of and maybe some of you aren't, but it's called Occasional Prayers. And there's 176 of them, so there's a lot. It's got prayers for family, prayers for the nation, prayers for holidays, prayer for creation, prayers for society, prayers for those in need and the sick. But there's two sections for personal life and for personal devotion. And if you've never checked those out before, they're prayers like, like 65 through 96. There's a lot of them. And these are historical prayers of the church. Many of them um, have, have their, the person who originally uh, kind of made the prayer listed. Others are just uh, historical prayers of the church. But these are great prayers that you can even memorize or incorporate into your worship. And I have personally found a lot of uplifting in them. So if you haven't, I encourage you to check them out. But there's a prayer that I thought really captured the sense of what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? What does it mean to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to, to God? So prayer 73 is a prayer of self-dedication. It's a prayer that comes from William Temple. William Temple was an archbishop of Canterbury uh, back during World War II. And so he led uh, the Anglican Church during a crucial time. Um, he's someone that I would commend. He's got some interesting, interesting books out there. But he has a prayer of self-dedication that I think really encapsulates what it means to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. So in conclusion this morning, I want you to just bow your head, close your eyes, and I'll say this slowly so that we can pray it together. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you, and then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand with me as we confess our faith in the Nicene Creed? 